Good morning, everyone. Grace and peace to you in the name of God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. As a reminder, we have made available to you the following resources through our Lord's Day Worship Guide that we're going to be emailing out to every member, uh, anybody on our mailing list every Sunday. It's going to be getting out to you earlier than last week as we're going to be pre-recording the sermon now so that we can give you the option of starting family worship time earlier on Sunday morning. On that family worship guide, you can click on hot links to get right to the bulletin. Uh, there are many things changed in the bulletin as our schedule of events has had to be modified in light of recent events with the virus. Uh, but you can also click on our sermon note sheet that would help you to navigate through the things you're going to learn in the sermon today. Uh, there's also options there online for giving. The work of God is still continuing to go on even though uh, the church is not allowed to gather together. And so if this is your church home, if this is the, the place where God has planted you to do ministry, then we would encourage you to continue to give and to not uh, neglect that. You can send that in through the mail um, by check, or you can use our online giving tool at firstfamily.us. Uh, new for this week, we also have a prayer guide available for you, uh, which is going to give you some advice on how to pray for the current events that are, are, are overcoming our country right now. Uh, pray for our church body and the different needs. Pray for the ministries that we can't be actively involved in, but our hearts are still engaged in. So uh, please take a look at that prayer guide. We would encourage you to print it out, put it on your refrigerator, someplace where you can see it as a family. And each day there will be specific things tied to the church's ministry that you could be lifting up in prayer to the Lord. Uh, I want to say that I'm very grateful for the elders and the deacons that I serve with. These men have been doing an admirable job of addressing the very important issues of the day head on. And so um, we are seeking in all things to represent the Lord well and to care for His church, His holy bride. And so uh, please be praying for these men. And I'm very grateful that I get to serve alongside them. We are in our second week of what I have come to think of as the coronavirus diaspora. It is an interesting time indeed. We long to gather together as God's people in obedience to the command of Scripture, but we also want to love our neighbor and to do what we can to help prevent the spread of this virus. And so like the nation of Judah, after the conquest of the Babylonian Empire brought judgment on the people of God and caused them to abandon the temple, abandon Jerusalem, God's holy city, and travel far and wide to settle in foreign places, we too are scattered about, sheltering in our homes. But regardless of the circumstances, we're determined to make sure that each Sunday is a day that we set aside for rest and for worshiping the Lord God as we were designed to do. The prophet Ezekiel ministered to God's people during the time of the exile. His job was to challenge his fellow Jews to remember that though they were not where they wanted to be, their God was still completely sovereign. He was using the difficult hardships that they had to endure at that time to bring his people closer to him, to accomplish his will among his elect. And so listen to what Ezekiel says to his countrymen in chapter 11, verse 16. Therefore... Say, thus says the Lord God, though I removed them far off among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Listen to that part again. 
Yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Let these words be a reminder to each of us that the sanctuary that we need is not a building. It is not some terms of freedom that would allow us to come and go as we please. The the sanctuary that we need to run to is the Lord God himself. And though we are getting just a small taste of the exile that God has chosen, that, that God's chosen had to endure for some 70 years under Ezekiel the prophet, we can seek shelter together in our God and use this time to draw near to him while we wait expectantly for our reunion. What a uniting power the word of God has. That it is not irrelevant or outdated in any culture into which it is studied. That it will do eternal good to all those who draw near to it, having faith not only in the written words, but in the living word, Jesus Christ, God's Son, who redeems us so that our eyes might be opened to what these words have to teach to us. So this morning we're going to continue on in the 10th chapter of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Please open your Bibles, if you haven't yet, to chapter 10 so that we can meditate on the wisdom that Solomon sees fit to include here. In this chapter, Solomon's gathered a collection of wisdom proverbs that might be broken down into a handful of general themes. And so last week we concentrated our attention on the contrast between wisdom and folly. We learned that if wisdom is not something that we desire in our hearts, then it will not impact our actions as we need it to. It will not bear the proper fruit that God intends to it to bear if it does not find itself into the core of our being, to our mind, into our heart, into our affections. And so this week we're going to be skipping ahead a little bit, a few verses, just to pick up on a different theme. That theme is speech. How might a wise heart produce speech that is honoring to God? Speech that reflects His wisdom. Speech that honors Him and does him justice. And so we are in chapter 10 of Ecclesiastes, and I will begin by reading verses 12 through 14. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words. Though no man knows what is to be, And who can tell him what will be after him? Church, let us pray and ask God's blessing on our time in his word today. Father, this temporary hindrance that we are experiencing is only a small inconvenience to us compared to what your people have had to endure in days gone by. And it is a very, very small inconvenience compared to the judgment we deserve because of our sin. Father God, we approach your throne humbly knowing that the only way that we can be near to you is because of the great and amazing grace you have displayed to us. By your grace, O God, we have received mercy and with it all that we need for contentment and joy. And so God, we praise you because your word is the sustenance that keeps us strong. It provides for us everything that we need. We approach it with a spirit of prayerfulness and expectation. We know that you can do good things in us according to these good words. And so I pray that you would humble us right now, Lord God, as we come before them. I pray that you would fill us with your spirit 
so that we can get full benefit of the preaching that occurs today. God, I know that in order for me to preach wisely about speech, then my speech must be wise. And so I pray that you would only allow me to say the things that really need to be said today, Lord God. And that, Father, through this time of worship, that we are not near to one another physically, that our spirits would resoundly approve of the things that you say together. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We know from the very earliest chapters of Scripture that mankind is set apart from other living beings that God has made because man alone is honored with the blessing of being made in the image of God. Because we carry the image of God, we have a duty to represent the Lord and reflect some of His wonder and holiness in the way that we live out our lives. That is evident in many different uh, the many differences that we see between mankind and the other creatures that God has made. The other creatures are wonderful. Uh, they, in some ways, speak to the creative power of God. But mankind alone is capable of the kind of love that we show one another. Mankind thinks abstractly. We can understand things symbolically. And we can take part in the big picture of, of history. We forgive one another and, and we show each other grace from time to time. We also exercise dominion over the creatures that God has made. So there are many differences between human beings and the animal kingdom. But one of the features that most clearly differentiates man from beasts is our capacity for complex communication through the spoken word. Communication is not unique to humanity, but representative language in both verbal and written form is the sole property of man and woman. The way that we talk is not a subject that is ignored by the Holy Scriptures, and we need to be aware of that. The Bible has a lot to say about the things that we say. Throughout God's Word, great attention is paid to the way that man speaks to one another. We see that very early in Genesis at the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. God had given a mandate to the creation, and after the flood, that mandate was reiterated that man was to be fruitful and multiply and to go into the earth and to fill it. And yet man in his pride decided that he had a better plan and settled down and began to build for himself a great tower, a testament to his creative abilities. This was initiated by pride and not by God. So God needed to do something to break apart this rebellious attitude. And what did he do? How did he respond to that rebellious nature of man? He interfered with their ability to communicate with one another. By humbling man's words, the Lord caused them to abandon their grand godless schemes and branch out again to be fruitful and to multiply we see it in other places. 20% of the Ten Commandments address the way that we speak about God and the ways that we communicate with one another. Commandment number three, do not take the Lord's name in vain. The words that we utter have significance, especially the words that we utter about the Father. Ver, uh, commandment number nine, do not bear false testimony against one another. There should be truth in our speaking. We see more wisdom in the book of Proverbs, which is full of instruction regarding the proper use 
of this powerful gift of language. And we're going to refer to some of those verses today in our discourse on Ecclesiastes 10. In the Gospels, Jesus addresses many facets of how we should speak or what we should say. He gave wisdom regarding vows. He instructed us that our yes is to be yes and our no is to be no. He told us not to be anxious about what we will say in defense of the Lord when we are called forward to give an account of our faith in Him. He urged us to have a faith that is more than mere words. Do you remember those humbling words in Matthew chapter 7 there near the end of the Sermon on the Mount? When someone comes up to Christ or he speaks of someone coming up to him saying, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? These men would declare that they had spoken great things about God, but those things did not match a heart of wisdom, a heart that saw their great need and dependence upon the Lord God himself. And so he responds to that individual, depart from me, I truly, I never knew you. Of course, Jesus himself is the living word who has been with God since the very beginning, who is God himself, one of the members of the triune Godhead. The book of James is another location where we can go and find wisdom and direction about the things that we say. In fact, chapter 3 of James warns us of the difficulties that we will inevitably face when we attempt to master the tongue. You may have noticed in your worship guide today that this was our call to worship. If you have not yet read that call to worship, I instruct whoever is leading you there in the house, hopefully it's dad or somebody has taken, taken the lead role there, to pause the sermon even right now and to go open up the Word and read James chapter 3. That is how we would normally have opened up our service if we were gathered together. So take some time right now to go and do that and then rejoin us. James testifies that the words we say have tremendous potential for influence and are thus extremely powerful. That power can be yielded for good or for evil. There are holy implications for the things that we say. We are making a grave mistake if we view the tongue as a purely secular instrument. For all its potential power, James tells us that the tongue is exceedingly difficult to control. I know that uh, I've seen this happen from time to time where somebody who is young and adventurous decides they're going to get themselves a motorcycle. And so what do they do? They go out to the motorcycle dealership and they, they say they, they want a, a nice bike to ride. And usually a responsible dealership will point them to one of the entry-level motorcycles, maybe a 250 or a 400. And so often... People are bent on speed, and so they say, no, I want something bigger. Do you have an 800? Do you, want a thousand, do you have a 1,000cc engine? And they buy some extremely fast motorcycle, one that they don't have the skill or experience to be able to control. And so there's never any shortage of uh, mechanic specials, 1,000cc motorcycles on Craigslist, because those new uh, drivers go out and they almost instantly wreck their motorcycles. They don't have control over the power that those bikes yield. They're a light machine with incredibly strong engines, and it takes finesse, it takes understanding, it takes wisdom to ride one. So too is language very powerful and potentially useful, but without wielding it with wisdom, we can do ourselves more harm than good. James tells us that we should not be quick to take on the responsibility of one who teaches others. 
without first considering the responsibility that we have in being a mouthpiece of the truth. Seeing that God's words spend a very significant amount of time addressing the topic of speech, we should pay close attention to the wisdom that God has unveiled to his people, particularly here in Ecclesiastes 10, verses 12 through 14. So verse 12 again says, The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. This is a specific kind of proverb. It is called an antithetical proverb. Antithetical proverbs are very common in the Bible. And in this form, two contrasting concepts are brought together to highlight their differences. The negative component of the proverb acts to amplify the blessing of the positive component. There's a good chance that you've been spending a little more time in front of your television than you normally would lately. Uh, Not being able to leave the house means our options uh, are a little bit limited. I would pray that perhaps you'd be spending more time in the Word, that you'd be catching up on some prayer that you've been putting off, Uh, but there's a good likelihood that you've also been watching a lot of Netflix. I was reading this week how the shelter-in mandates, these commands that principalities are giving us to not leave the house, that they are happening all over Europe, and that in Europe, Netflix has had such an increase in traffic and usage in their services that they are considering a downgrade universally from high definition to 720pi resolution so that the high volume of data streaming doesn't knock out all of their bandwidth. Now, you don't know how good your TV's color and clarity is until you're forced to watch a little 720p which, of course, used to be the gold standard of viewing just 15 or so years ago. But when you see that contrast, when you have to look at something that's old and grainy and blocky, that helps you to appreciate what you have now. That's how an antithetical proverb works. And so here the words of a wise man are accomplishing one good thing, but the words of a fool are likely to accomplish something dramatically different and worse. What can the words of a wise man, words that are under control, words that are governed by God's truth, what can they accomplish? Well, these words, according to verse 12, can win us favor. Now, this verse is not translated the same in every edition of the Bible. The word for favor here is the word chen, which is translated sometimes favor, sometimes grace in the Old Testament. In fact, the word Win is not even in the original text. It is added by the English Standard Version translators who see the two sides of this proverb as addressing what is to be gained by the two modes of speech. But the translation that we might find in, for instance, the New American Standard Bible might be a bit more accurate. The NASB says in Proverbs 10, or uh, Ecclesiastes 10.12, words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious, while the lips of a fool consume him. If this is what we really have to work with, then the first half of verse 12 rejoices in the good that comes when we speak wisely. Wise speech brings grace. It brings grace first to the speaker, to the one who is speaking wisely. If my words are wise, then my words do not sabotage me. They do not paint me into a corner because they don't contradict the plain facts of reality. 
In fact, they add grace to my life by repeating that which has been giving me the most grace, God's wisdom. When I speak of wisdom, I speak, of course, of the ultimate wisdom, which only can come from the Lord God himself. So if I'm going to speak wisdom, I'm speaking what God has revealed to me. How can that not be graceful to my heart? Words from the the mouth of a wise man bless the wise man because they do him no harm. And the wisdom of the things he says improves the way that other people view him as well. When people see the wisdom of God coming through in the way this man speaks, they have a better opinion of him. In other words, he grows in favor with them. Grace to the speaker is one of the results of wise wisdom, but there is more. Sometimes wise wisdom also brings grace to the hearer as well. Wisdom expressed and shared has the potential to do someone else a lot of good. Loiter around those who are wise. Hang on their words. Listen to them speak to you of the goodness and the glory of God. Their words will be a blessing to them, but they'll be a blessing to you as well as you receive the wise things that they have gained over a life of following the Lord. Let the blessing of experience, which has fallen on them, overflow to you. So we can see why then that the ESV translates the passage as words of a wise man's mouth win him favor. Speaking wisely will likely earn us favor with others who are blessed by our way of speaking. But we have seen this positive truth misused, haven't we? There is no shortage of charlatan con men whose lips drip as if with honey. They have taken this reality and they have twisted it to their advantage. They have come to see that words that sound wise will gain them favor, attention, and often are very profitable to them. And so they have taken to use crafty speech, lying at will and making false promises to impress and to coerce others. Like any tool, speech has the power to do harm as well as good and must be wielded cautiously. Despite the lies of deceptive people, truly wise words rightfully gain a person favor. When someone speaks wisdom, when someone can tell you the things that God has eternally declared, then they deserve respect and honor. They earn the trust of those who listen to them. Those who hear wisdom coming forth from them will admire them more. And they are more likely to gain a position of authority and influence over others if others can see them appealing to the wisdom of God in the way that they speak. Now it is a sad reality that some people would rather be lied to than hear the truth because they have heard enough of the truth to see that it doesn't suit their preferences. They will allow themselves to be led by wolves. And so some false teachers and con artists who should have been exposed long ago continue to be able to draw a crowd and woo a congregation. Let us have a sharper sense of discernment than that, brothers. Let us understand what we hear, sisters, and and guard our hearts against it. Let us compare the things spoken to us to God's word, that we might not be led astray just simply by pretty speech, but that wisdom will be the thing that we truly seek when we are listening to others. The wise man's word will be grace to him. But, and there's another side to this antithetical proverb, a fool's words will have a very different effect. 
the lips of a fool will consume him. Here Solomon uses an ironic expression to enhance effect. The lips are not only useful for speaking, are they? They are also used for eating. Here the foolish things that come out of a person who has no regard for the wisdom of God will create such havoc in their lives that the consequences of their careless words will eat them alive. The things that a fool says lead not only to eventual consequence, but perhaps even to a fool's destruction. There is a very vivid example of this in the book of Acts. In chapter 5, where the word of the Lord says, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Hold on for a second right there. This giving is a generous act. And it is an act of of goodness that would benefit others. But, But what we need to understand here is that it wasn't that the man did not give enough. It wasn't that being a part of the church was measured by how much money you had to give. It was the fact that this man, Ananias, had pledged a property of his to the church. He had promised to give. And then having sold it, he saw the sum was so great that if perhaps he gave only a portion of that sum to the church, then they would think he gave the whole thing and people would give him the credit for being a very generous man, but we would also be able to fill his own pockets and benefit his personal desires. Verse 4. Peter tells him, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Here is a vivid example of one who carried away with words of foolishness, spoke as though he was one thing, when in reality he was something very different. And it did not just affect Ananias. As if we were to read further, we would see that his wife, Sapphira, was led by this false wisdom, by this foolishness of her husband and said the same lie after him and her life also came to an end. We notice a few things about this example. Ananias and Sapphira did this to themselves. They put themselves in a position where they were formerly well-received in the church, blessed to be a part of this great new movement that was declaring the will of God and showing salvation to the world. And yet they chose to bring lies and deception amongst their brothers and sisters. Their consumption was completely avoidable. The land was theirs. They could have done whatever they wanted to. God had made them a steward of that land. And that they choose to use it as a manipulation tool to gain the affections of others without having to really sacrifice anything for it or not much. They looked past the greater joy, which is God's will being accomplished among his people, to try to gain a lesser joy, trying to trick people into thinking of them as more generous than they truly were. 
Friends, whatever perceived benefit might befall you for speaking before you think, the likely cost will almost certainly outweigh the benefit. Christian, you who are commissioned to carry the light of Christ into the world, will you be so desperate for a laugh that you will allow yourself to tell an offensive joke or share an off-color story, one that would perhaps be thought of as acceptable to the world, but would probably bring a gasp if it were uttered in the presence of the Savior? Christian, you who have been entrusted with the gospel of truth, will you let a lie slip effortlessly from your lips just to strengthen your appearance to another person? Will you trade reality for a fabricated story, exchanging your integrity for the admiration of those who may momentarily be impressed by your exaggerations? Christian, you who have been called to love the God who loved you first and to love even your enemy with a similar love, will you let insults and slander and hatred spring out of your same mouth that you use to pray to God for mercy and forgiveness? Weigh your words carefully this morning, brothers and sisters. Maybe you think I'm exaggerating the importance of guarding your tongue. Am I being too strict in this? I've had people come up to me and say, what are you so worried about? It's not that big of a deal. I had a man once tell me that he didn't trust somebody who wasn't willing to curse because somebody who curses is just saying what they really believe, what they really feel. So some of you might think that we're, we're stressing the point too much this morning. Others might even argue, in fact, that it's more important to be like the lost in the way that we speak so that we can come across as relatable and in touch to them. Maybe you think this is all an overreaction. If that is the case, friends, then consider the warning that we hear from the preacher in verse 13. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. Every journey has a beginning and an end, and verse 13 speaks of a type of journey, doesn't it? The middle of the journey may have many twists and turns, but it is inevitably leading to a specific destination. This particular journey begins with words of foolishness. And where does it end? It ends with evil madness. The pervasive nature of foolish talk has an escalating quality. If we let it go unchecked, it will progress, and it progresses from bad to worse. When wisdom does not rule the tongue, we will find ourselves on the edge of sin's slippery slope. What is the beginning of words? We know that, don't we, from last week. We talked about it in verse 2 of chapter 10. The beginning of foolish words is a heart that is itself foolish. When the heart is wise, it inclines a man to the right and it blesses him. When the heart is foolish, it inclines him to the left and it does him harm. A foolish heart is bound to produce the rotten fruit of foolish words. And the more foolishness that flows out of the foolish heart, the more madness it can lead to. Do you really need an example of this madness? How about the madness of a man who was at one point serving the Lord as a minister of the gospel? A father of two. A person who others looked up to for spiritual guidance. Madness 
is that man leaving his wife of almost 20 years who is suffering with stage four cancer, moving away from his children, abandoning his ministry and betraying his calling. Why? Where did that start? It started innocently enough with a few words exchanged on Facebook with a girl that he used to know in high school. Those foolish words, though they seemed maybe innocent to others, sprouted a few more words. The conversation went from casual to confidential to inappropriate. And before you know it, the freedom of speech has evolved into full-blown adultery and abandonment. Madness. Foolish words in any of its forms are the beginning of a journey you don't want to take if you desire to live a life that is acknowledging the wisdom of God. So let us take a moment to consider the many kinds of foolish speech that might afflict a heart that is not paying attention. You can fall into words without knowledge. The foolish heart is compelled to play the part of an expert in areas that it knows very little about. You'd be amazed at how many people will listen to you if you just speak confidently enough. Beware the bold and Gnostic message that claims to know something that is right around the corner. I've talked to several church members this week who said, Pastor, I, I got a text message or somebody sent me something on Facebook and they said that they had some inside knowledge that the government was getting ready to shut down all of the, the country, that people were going to be on strict lockdown, that there were going to be military men in the streets with guns. What do I do? How do I respond? And, and I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Perhaps there is a, an inkling of truth to some of these things. But my gut reaction is that this is just another example of people who don't know anything trying to sound as if they're the first ones to the party, as if they have some prior knowledge. And the, the great the great danger of this is that if people listen to that false information, they might make a run in the stores. We might have people who need supplies who can't get it because somebody else thinks they need 400 rolls of toilet paper because the military is about to take over. Friends, we've got to be considerate and thoughtful to one another. And we can't just listen to every whisper we hear. We've got to be discerning. And I know that's not always easy. So seek wisdom on these things. There is so much speech that is devoid of knowledge. We must avoid these things. Another kind of foolish speech is weaponized words. Words that are said in such a way as to hurt and to unsettle. Insults, speaking down on people, bringing up past failures and sins. Words of racism and bigotry. Words of judgment that have no love for their foundation. Threats to others of violence or blackmail. Apparently this week, an employee could not handle the stress of the crowds at a Winco nearby, and they called in a bomb threat at their own store just to get things to stop for a while. Friends, threats are a foolish way of speaking. And one of the most damaging of wicked words is gossip. And this is a, a particularly common affliction amongst churches, 
a place where we are to behave as though we are family to one another, where we, we, we don't feel comfortable being apart from each other for even a week because our bonds are tight. We want to know what's going on in each other's lives, but unfortunately that is also a breeding ground for rumors and gossip, speculations, or even fabricated stories meant to skew your view of somebody else in the body. Friends, we must reject this kind of speech. Weaponized words can do no one any good. Words that are meant to deceive. In the ninth commandment that we spoke about earlier, we were told that we are not to bear false witness against one another. And it's interesting, the sin of lying, because it is so easy to do. It costs so little up front, but all of the all of the cost comes on the back end. When we lie to one another, we undermine the very trust that is essential for a family to feel like a family. Wise words must be true. There is a way to speak foolishly by speaking too few words. For those of you who are husbands, I want to take a moment now to speak frankly with you. It is very wise for you to make an effort to communicate with your wife and with your children, even if they're much better at it than you are. 1 Peter 3, 7 says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands, take the time to talk to your wife about what's going on. We're in a very tumultuous time right now. Is your wife more settled and secure because of the way that you have approached her and spoken lovingly to her, assuring her that you will be with her through this, and more importantly, that the Lord God is with us all through this? Have you taken the time to ask her how these events are affecting her? Have you sat with your children and, and, and heard how they are responding to these things? Friends, we cannot afford to be the leader who sits on his perch and, and watches through observation, but never says, but never shares, but never communicates. It is a sin at times to speak less than we should, especially if God has given us a stewardship over those who are precious to him. When we leave important information out that changes the way that a person views what is said or who it is said about, then we could use too few words in a different way, in a deceptive way. We could be practicing lying whether we know it or not. Speaking the full truth is the safest way to go. There are times when we need to be discreet, but being forthright as a general rule will guard your heart against the foolishness that can lead to madness. One last example would be the opposite of too few words. Sometimes foolish words are represented by too many words. Verse 14 says, A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The fool speaks as though he knows, though all he's doing is speaking off the top of his head. And here we have come to one of the key characteristics of, of foolish speech. A fool speaks with much more confidence than knowledge. And that is a detriment to him and those who hear him. 
In Luke chapter 12, we see this played out in a parable that Jesus shares about a man who is well invested and, and thinks he knows what is to come. It starts in verse 13 of Luke 12. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he begins the story. He told them a parable in verse 16, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. It's a good problem to have, isn't it? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. There's a lot of saying going on in that parable. The man is speaking to himself wisdom that he thinks is wisdom when is reality foolishness. He's trying to assure himself that his desires are what should motivate his actions when in reality he's not even considering the will of God in all this. He's not considering that there is one sovereign among us and that no matter the, the fact that we might plan in detailed me measure what's going to happen tomorrow, God is the one that sets the path. Humble your heart and and keep the Lord God in mind whenever you're thinking about the future. Especially in light of what we're learning today, be careful what you say about what's to come, because only God knows. In verse 14, it says, A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be. And listen to this last part. And who can tell him what will be after him? And who can tell him what will be after him? This question might be viewed as rhetorical if it were asked only here. But as it were, this very same question that Solomon asks in Ecclesiastes 10, 14, he already asked. He asked it in chapter 3, verse 22. He asked it in chapter 6, verse 12. He asked it in verse 7 of chapter 8. And then essentially he's asking the same question in chapter 9, verse 12. Again and again and again, he brings our attention to this question, who can tell a man what is to come after him? There is only one who knows. And the one who knows is the Lord God himself. If we have any hope of taming our tongue, if we have any hope of bringing forth speech that is saturated with wisdom instead of foolishness, friends, then we must adapt our words to match up with his wisdom. You will not control your own words well if you neglect the living word and all the words that he has placed before you as a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Having seen the pitfalls of foolish speech, can we take a moment to reflect on the opposite, on the characteristics of wise speech? The Lord has a lot to tell to us to say to us through his word about wise speech. Wise speech is pure. 
It is unhindered by ugly insults and crude references. It is unhindered by sexual innuendo. As chapter 3 of Zephaniah verse 9 says, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. What time is he speaking about? He's he's talking about the, the time of the new covenant. He's talking about our time. God desires the work of the Holy Spirit within us to make us the kind of people that speak purely, who have a holy way about our words, who consider the wisdom of God before we even dare to open our mouths. Wise speech is pure. Wise speech is true. It correlates with what God has declared. It reflects on actual reality instead of basing itself in speculation. Put away from you crooked speech says Proverbs 4.24, and put devious talk far from you. We must not allow ourselves to fall into the way of the world which is so quick to spin lies and tales and to play in fantasy instead of being rooted in reality. Why speech is true, it is also loving. Ephesians 4 reminds us that we are to speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ So truth and love must be married together in the way that we speak to one another, friends. Wise speech is loving speech. And from that, we see also that wise speech is winsome speech. It is a speech that is attractive to the ears of those who hear. We must consider our audience. We must be considerate of their sensitivities, of their weaknesses, of how much or how little they know the word of God. Chapter 16 of Proverbs, verse 21. The wise of heart is called discerning, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. We cannot come in with guns ablazing and think that speech that is only true but lacks in love is going to do any good to anyone. Let our speech be winsome to those, especially to those who are lost and need to see the beauty of our Savior. Wise speech is also gracious. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. This is 1 Peter 3, verse 15. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Be ready to give a defense, but it is a defense that is what? Gentle, that it is respectful, that considers the fragile heart of the one that is being spoken to. Especially consider that a new believer, one who is not well versed in each of these important concepts of wise speech and so cannot expect their language to be seasoned in salt. Paul advises in Colossians 4, 6, let your speech be always gracious Seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. What does that mean? That means that the more time you spend worshiping your God, the more days you spend in the word with him, in prayer seeking him, the more that love and wisdom of Christ is going to permeate the inner you. And the more you're going to bear fruits of great righteousness in the way that you speak. As you grow, you will find your manner of talking will grow along with you. The things that you said 10 years ago, believer, who's been walking with the Lord for a time, should 
are probably not as holy as the things you're saying today. They're probably not as gracious, probably not as loving and true, probably not as winsome as you have learned to speak today. And so as we close out this morning, and we're so very grateful that you are continuing to pursue the Lord's word with your church by by, uh, using this resource on the internet today, I want you to think about one more place that scripture puts its attention upon our words. I want you to think of the throne room of God. I want you to think of it as it is described in Isaiah chapter 6. God has put heaven on my heart quite a bit this past week. The general struggles of life and the difficulties of adapting to the restraints that have been put upon us, it's not been easy to bear. Uh, Your elders, your deacons, we have been struggling to find out how we can continue to love you well through all of this. And so there have been days when I've just been wishing it was time for heaven. I'm done with a broken world that can be turned upside down so quickly. I've been thinking a lot about the many promises that God has given to us that await those who are faithful and who have an inheritance in Christ that is secure and cannot be lost. I've been thinking about those things. And then as you might have heard, um, Saturday morning, uh, our sweet friend D.W. passed away and went to be with our Savior. So heaven has been on my mind lately. So we have this passage in Isaiah chapter 6. It is an awesome picture of a man, a created being, a sinner like you and like me, a man coming into the presence of the holy God. And if we read it, the picture is unreal. We see that God is there and he is seated upon his throne in all of his glory. And the train of his robe is just filling the temple with a glory that we can hardly visualize and understand because God is unlike anything we've ever encountered in life. And there are seraphim, the holy creatures that we've never beheld with our eyes. And they are flying about the throne of God and they are continually praising him with a chorus. And that chorus is holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The foundations of creation are shaking as God is speaking in that scene in chapter 6 of Isaiah, what is a mortal man to do when he finds himself in such a place? When he comes before the living God and all of his iniquity and brokenness and weakness and sin is instantly evident to him, what does he do? What does he say? This is what Isaiah says. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. My friends, Isaiah identifies and confesses his deficiency. The unholy state of his own lips is of immediate concern to him. Do you notice that? Have you ever thought and dwelled upon that? That the thing he confesses first is that he doesn't speak wisely the way that he should. And this is a prophet. 
This is a man whom God has put his own words into this man's heart and mind. He has transcribed eternal revelation through this man. And yet he recognizes that his words are not always pure. That his speech needs to be more righteous than it is. And yet God in his mercy does not leave Isaiah in this corrupted state. What does he do for him? Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin is atoned for. He is pointing forward so very clearly to the work of God the Son who leaves that wonderful dwelling place on high to come and be with us. He is pointing forward to the atonement that will replace all these pictures of atonement that Isaiah is so familiar with, being a man of the old covenant. And he shows him that these lips that are unclean, these lips that have cursed, these lips that have lied, these lips that have said unspeakable things can be cleansed, but not by the man himself, not by Isaiah or the things that he has done, not by any act of contrition on his part, not by any penance that he could pay, but they could only be cleaned by the work that God has done for him. That work, friends, is accomplished by the Christ we sing praises to today and every day. We have no hope of speaking wisdom in any way if our hearts are not tuned to the wisdom of God through the work of Christ. And so if I can plead with you in any way today as as your pastor, seek your cleansing in Christ. If your words need work, and I know that mine do, then find yourself at the foot of the cross considering and praising God for the great work that he did to wash you clean. And he suffered upon that rugged cross when his blood spilled out for you and for me. He washed away that iniquity that used to rule our lips and made it impossible for us to speak in holy ways. You, if you have trusted in Christ, have been made new today so that you can do new things, so that you can worship the Lord God well. So use your mouth as an instrument of worship for the Lord. We are cleansed for a purpose. And it is no coincidence that in the verses that follow, the Lord God declares that there is a great message that needs to be sent out into the world. And who will stand up and declare that message. And Isaiah, who moments ago was undone, who didn't know what he was going to do to survive the presence of this holy God, is now standing forth and saying, here I am, send me. You've done a great work in me, God, so I can do a work now in honor of you. Friends, if you have been sanctified by Christ, and your lips have been touched with that burning coal, I pray that you would speak of the goodness of this God who has redeemed you and made you new. 
who has grabbed hold of you and pulled you out of the mire of your selfish pride and have set you again on the mandate that he has called for your life. Go into the nations and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that has been commanded. And lo, the Lord God will be with us even to the end of the age. He is with us now. Even as we sit there in our living room floor, even as we recline in our chair, as we drive on the road and listen to this sermon, he is with us now. Let he be glorified in everything that we do and in all the words that we say. Mighty God, you are holy and we are a people who need to be holy and can only be holy by your work. And so I thank you that before time began, your perfect words declared that a redemption would be won through your son, Jesus Christ. And that covenant is playing itself out among us even now, Lord God. We thank you for the promises that are being kept in your, in your people. And I ask, Lord God, that you would continue to save and redeem, that you would continue to remove the veil of deception that is over so many people's eyes as they think that they are okay with you because they're not the worst of us. Lord God, every man is a sinner. Every woman is clothed in iniquity until you come and grab hold of their hearts and make them new through grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. May you receive the glory for every good thing ever said by your redeemed. And may, Lord, we seek your wisdom instead of our own. We pray this all, Lord God, thankful in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or hope, according to the power that is at work within you, to him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Be blessed, church. We hope to see you soon.